Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. So this week on Product Love, I sat down and talked to Teresa Torres. Teresa is a product discovery coach who's worked with some really well-known companies in places like Allstate, CareerBuilder, Capital One, and, and Prezi, among others. In addition, she teaches at Northwestern University. So with Teresa, we talked a lot about product discovery processes. And one area that I found particularly interesting was our discussion of product vision and the customer's role in that vision. And so this got me to thinking, are product managers passionate about the right things? You know, often I see product managers that are extremely passionate about their own products, but is that the right thing? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying to not be passionate about your product, but rather I'm saying that the primary focus of your passion should be your customers in solving their problems. And I think only by focusing your passion on their issues in solving their problems, only by doing that can you build a product that you really should be passionate about. So what's powerful about Teresa is how she thinks and guides companies to adopt you know, continuous, not just one time, but continuous product discovery practices and how this adoption leads to powerful and sustainable product organizations. Well, enough from me. Let's kick this off and afterwards tweet at me at eBodic or shoot me a note at eBodic at pendo.io and tell me what you think. Welcome lovers of product. Today I have with me Teresa Torres. Teresa, why don't you start by giving us a little overview of your background? Sure. So today I work as a product discovery coach. That's not a typical role. So really what that means is I work with product teams, usually a trio. So a product manager, a designer, and a tech lead. We work on how to adopt continuous discovery habits. So how do you engage with customers week over week and use those touch points as ways to learn more about their context, learn about your product ideas, what's going to work, what's not going to work. I got into that in a really roundabout way. I started my career back in the late 90s as a front-end developer and interaction designer, long before anybody was hiring interaction designers. And then over a series of sort of roles at early stage startups, moved into product management. I've moved into operational roles at startups. I've been both a startup CEO, went on to a next company where I ran a product and design team. And really I just saw the same challenges everywhere and that product teams weren't engaging with customers nearly enough. And so I decided I wanted to focus on solving that particular problem. So you mentioned a lot of it, really diverse background, right? From UX experience, startup management, organizational change, even some work in cognitive science, if I remember correctly, right? That's right. So how have those different experiences shaped your approach and perspective to product? Yeah, so as an undergraduate, I did a cognitive science program at Stanford called Symbolic Systems. And it really, it's a little bit different from traditional cognitive science. It looks at both. So a traditional cognitive science program is how the human brain works. Symbolic systems is both how the human brain works, but also how machines process information. And that was my first introduction to human-centered design. And it was really great having that foundation as a 22-year-old coming into industry. In fact, I naively thought that was just how business worked and had to spend the next 10 years reconciling why it didn't work that way. That gave me a huge leg up just in terms of my perspective as a designer and as a product manager. Later, as a startup CEO, I was blown away by how startup 
employees, people that you would think would be comfortable with change and high risk, really struggled when our startup started to struggle. And so that really led me to understand why is it that people have a hard time with change. And I went back and got a master's in learning and organizational change at Northwestern. And that actually has had a really big impact on my coaching work uh, because I've learned a lot about how just learning and development works in the workplace and how we can really help people invest in themselves in a professional context. So you, you transitioned to this product discovery coach, right? Yep, that's right. So talk to me about that transition, why you made that move, what drove you to become a product discovery coach, why you're passionate about that? Yeah, so over the series of about five years at a single company, I went from, I came in as their senior director of product management, and I resigned as their CEO five years later, which was a wild ride in and of itself. And what I learned in those five years was that I wasn't terribly excited about running a company. I think it had something in most of my career was something that I aspired to, and frankly, It wasn't very fun, and I really missed product and design. And so then I went into another startup as the head of product and design, and I really realized that what I loved about my role as a head of product was developing my team. But I didn't love all the work that's required to align with an executive team and really some of that more traditional business stuff that startups, especially venture-backed startups, have to be on this timeline and, and whatnot. And so I really started to think about how can I create a role that allows me to do all the things that I love and didn't include the things I didn't love. And that's really what led to becoming a coach. And I started out by just coaching product managers. And then over time started to really hone in on what was it that I thought product managers and product teams in particular needed to get really good at. And that's what led me to discovery. Hmm. That's interesting. I'm impressed too that like a lot of us just suffer through the stuff we don't like, but you actually consciously thought about it and said, you know, there's these areas I don't like, so let's find the job or the opportunity or the career or the life that's best for me. Yeah, so I think it's a strength and a weakness that I don't have a lot of capacity for doing things that I don't like. So the strength part of it is exactly what you highlight. The negative part of it is it was always a challenge as an employee because I'm not very good at doing You know, I'm not going to eat my peas because there's plenty of vegetables I like and I don't like peas. Got it. I, I, I got to respect that. I, I'm impressed. So one thing I know, having, having read some of the stuff you've written and listened to you speak before, you talk about this thing, or I should say you warn product managers not to fall in love with their product or ideas, right? Talk to me about why that's important. Yeah, I think there's this concept called the escalation of commitment, which is, I think it originally, maybe, I don't know if it's where it originated, but it was popularized by Robert Cialdini, the author of the book Influence, uh, which is sort of an iconic or landmark book about human behavior and what, how we influence people. And he talks about this study where people went and knocked on doors and asked them if they would put a political sign on their their lawn, and most people said no. But then they tried it a different way, where they first said, would you donate $5 to this political campaign? And most people said yes. And then a week or two later, they came back and said, will you put this giant ugly sign on your lawn? And they saw the conversion rate go way up. And what's happening there is as soon as you make a donation to that charity or that political campaign, you start to identify as somebody who does that. You're invested. Yeah, you're invested. And so then when you get asked the second ask, you are more likely to say yes. So this seems like a really innocuous thing. And in fact, if you've ever donated money to a charity, it always seems weird why they ask you like the very next day to donate again. But it turns out that it works. You're more likely to convert even if you just donated. So this idea plays out in the product world. We have an idea. We start to play with it. We start to identify with the idea, we fall in love with it, and it becomes harder and harder to consider other ideas. And then if we 
couple escalation of commitment with confirmation bias, where we're more likely to see confirming evidence than disconfirming evidence. It's this one-two punch where we put blinders on and we're going to blindly move forward with an idea, even if the whole universe is telling us there's lots of flaws and problems with it. Hmm. Interesting. Do you see that both at startups you've worked with and larger companies? And is it at the same degree? Yeah, I think it's universal. I think at startups, it's particularly problematic because founders are rewarded for having strong product visions. Mm -hmm. It's how they raise money. It's how they hire employees. It's how they make their first sales. In a startup, your first few sales are missionary sales. And so all the feedback you're getting in the world, if your startup is continuing to exist, is that your vision is perfect. The reality is your vision might be pretty good, but it's probably not perfect. And it's probably going to need a lot of evolution and work to get to something that's viable. And so we need to be really careful about not falling in love with our idea and instead looking at, here's a customer base that I'm really passionate about solving their needs for and problems. And I can fall in love with that. And then what that does is it allows me to be really passionate and to be really human-centered, but be able to be open to, hey, this particular idea may not be working. And I need to, if, my, if what I'm passionate about is solving a problem or addressing a need, then I'm much more likely to keep iterating on a faulty solution until it actually addresses that need. So be passionate about problems, not products. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So, yeah, I think that you hear about the startup, right, mentality, and a lot of people that feel like they need to push through their vision, right? It's kind of like convince people that the product is the right solution, but that shouldn't be the approach. The approach should be like, let's fix your problem and let's figure out how to properly fix that as opposed to like through my own will making reality bend to, you know, my product. Yeah, and I think the way that we idolize particular startup founders doesn't help with this, right? We talk about Steve Jobs' reality distortion field. And yes, we talk about, that comes to mind. Yeah, and we talk about Elon Musk and his ability to just completely disrupt markets. I think, first of all, the way we represent both Steve Jobs and Elon Musk probably doesn't represent reality, right? I'm going to guess that Steve Cook and Jonathan Ives had a huge impact on Apple's turnaround, which we're not hearing when we talk about Steve Jobs as the guy that saved Apple. Um, I'm sure there's dozens, if not hundreds, of other people at Apple that contributed. I think the same is true of all of Elon Musk's companies. I think what's particularly interesting is this is not just a startup founder challenge. I think at bigger companies, it comes in a little bit of a different flavor, but it still exists. And that's that most executives at big companies, and definitely our middle managers at big companies, their entire careers, they've been rewarded for being right. So they're expected to have the right answers. And that's very similar to a startup founder being rewarded for having a strong vision, right? So they raised venture capital because they had a strong vision. In a big company, an executive got promoted because they, had a str they made decisions that turned out to be right. But we don't question is how many times were decisions wrong and what were the consequences of that? And what was their process for making those decisions? And is that what's leading to sort of a higher batting average, if you don't mind the sports analogy here? I'm a baseball guy from way back when, so I'm all, I'm all good. And we're also, you know, recording at industry and, and postseason baseball is about to kick off. So those are all great. Love the baseball analogies. So let's talk about other mistakes product management teams make. I mean, this is obviously one. What else do you see? What else do they tend to do wrong? What's a common mistake you see? I think what we're seeing today is that most teams are becoming familiar with this concept of discovery. And they're including discovery activities in their work. But they're doing it in a project from a project mindset. So with a project mindset, I'm being told to build a feature or deliver an Android app, or they're given a project. At the beginning of that project, they start with a little bit of discovery. It's followed by a lot of delivery. They ship a feature, they ship an app, and then they move on to the next project. 
And the challenge with that is that in the digital product world, we're never really done, right? We don't build an app once and then walk away and say, okay, let's do the next thing. Or even if we do, we shouldn't because we're, with digital products, we have the ability to measure, did we have the impact we intended? And very rarely are we gonna have the intended impact on iteration one. And so rather than taking this project mindset, most product teams really would benefit from taking a product mindset or a continuous discovery mindset where we say, look, we're responsible for making this product as good as it can be for as long as it takes. And therefore, rather than taking this project mindset to discovery where it's front-loaded, we need to be continuously engaging with our customers so that week over week, as those little questions that come up that can make or break our product, we're infusing those decisions with customer input. And that's, I often talk about, I think a product team should be engaging with customers at least once a week. People think I'm insane for saying that, but I work with teams that talk to customers every other day. And there's even some companies where they can talk to customers every day. And if that's who you're competing with, you probably want to focus on reducing your cycle time between customer touch points. Yeah, no, I've definitely heard that. And I think speaking with customers can probably not be too often. Like I was talking with uh, Schwartz over at Wix. He's like talking to three a day. I yeah. mean, for a company, Wix, public company, large product organization or product guild as they, as they structure them over there. And he's always talking to customers as much as possible. Yeah, you know, it's funny when product teams tell me they don't have time because I was a startup CEO of a company that sold recruiting software during the, during the economic downturn. Let me tell you, that was not an easy job. Nobody was hiring. We were <laughs> running out of money. Was it was called Affinity Circles. Okay. And we, it was a two-sided marketplace. We sold software to alumni associations to engage their alumni. And then we sold recruiting software that allowed them to advertise inside those communities. And as a CEO doing seven roles, trying to save a company through an economic downturn, I still talk to a university, an alum, and an employer every single day of the job. And it's because I knew that if I didn't do that, we were going to be making decisions that would take us off track. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I think it's amazing to me. I did a, we did a study with Product Collective too, looking at where input comes from, you know, for product direction. And one of the things that astounded me was a lot of product managers out there get more input and drive more roadmap based upon what competitors are doing than actually what their customers want, where the problems are. You know, so I found that disturbing. Yeah, we assume that our competitors are getting it right. But the reality is most companies are not very good at discovery. So why are we basing our decisions off of somebody else's really poor discovery when we really could just do a little bit of discovery ourselves and immediately create this moat between us and our competitors? And I think part of it is people think about interviewing customers and they think it has to be this hour-long formal exercise with a three-page discussion guide. And really, when I was talking to three people a day, they weren't hour-long conversations. I wasn't spending three hours a day with my customers. Sometimes it was a 15-minute conversation, right? It's just how do I keep this continuous drip of the customer perspective in my daily work? And I think that's the mindset of if I'm going to make decisions every day, how can I make sure as many of those decisions can be infused with customer input as possible? Yeah, and, and I used to use Pendo. Uh, we still use Pendo. I work at Pendo. <laughs> it's sponsor of ProductCraft and the Product Club podcast. But one of the cool things I used it for was to like find out who's using this feature a lot, and then I'll just contact them. And I'll be like, oh, I'd like to talk to you about X, you know, and, and have a 10-minute conversation about what you did and didn't like about X and how you think X could be better. Yeah, absolutely. I think the key that you just said is just have a conversation. I think we get caught up on are we doing it right? We think about it as really formal. And actually, if you think about it just as a conversation, you're going to have a better conversation and you're going to learn more. And your customers are more likely to want to keep talking to you. 
So you mentioned something else there in, in your answer that I wanted to dig into a little bit, and that was like making improvements, right? Mm -hmm. So you're geared to an outcome, and the outcome might be make something faster or make this easier to, to do for a customer, like make the steps where they can get their job done, you know, 10 times better. And now we talked about continuous improvement. So are you a proponent of as long as people are making business impact, keep the team on that and keep moving on that? Yeah, so we're seeing, I think, in the industry that there's this concept of durable teams. So it's a team that's staying on the same product with hopefully a similar outcome over time. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. So one, it allows them to build deep knowledge about that product. It allows them to build deep knowledge about that customer. And then the reason why I think it's important to think about durable metrics as well is it takes time to learn what's going to move that metric. Mm -hmm. Now, oftentimes we hit a point where we just can't squeeze more juice from the lemon right? And we need to switch to a new metric. And that's fine. But generally what I see happen too often is they focus on engagement one quarter, and then they switch to retention the next quarter, and then they switch on to acquisition the next quarter. And they're never really getting the depth of learning that it takes to really move the needle on a metric. And so I think what we're seeing, some, um, definitely among the best companies, is they're really prioritizing durable teams with time to explore what it will take to drive a particular outcome. And then as long as the benefit keeps going, like as long as you're keep getting benefit out of that team and on that outcome, just let them keep iterating on it? Yeah, why not? I would, I would say definitely. <laughs> I see a lot of time where people just switch. It's like, oh, we've done that and we've done this first project and we made this improvement, so let's do something else. And then I'm like, well, can't you keep going? Yeah, I think there's a big firefighting mentality within business, right, where we're looking at yesterday's urgent problem rather than looking towards what's important in the future. I think some of this is because leaders are also learning how to move to an outcome mindset. So we like to think about it as what are the skills and mindsets that a product team needs to deliver on outcomes. But there's also skills and mindsets that leaders need to adopt to be able to set, and set good outcomes and know how to manage by outcomes. So I think what's really important is for leadership to look across their business and really define that set of metrics that if all the metrics were improving would really create value for the business, hopefully in a way that creates value for the customer. And I don't think that set of metrics is going to change very often, right? In a lot of businesses, you could probably identify exactly what those are, right? If I'm Netflix, I probably have to care about customer acquisition. I probably have to care about how much content they're consuming. I probably have to care about how much content I have on the platform, right? Like there's a fixed number of things that are really going to impact that business. And there's no reason why I can't have teams dedicated full time to those metrics. Because it's not like Netflix is going to wake up one day and say, well, you know what? We're done with customer acquisition, right? I mean, Facebook might because the whole world's on Facebook. But even so, they're, instead of saying they're done, they're just building internet infrastructure in India so they can get all the yeah, remaining people. Yeah. I mean, if you take the cost of acquiring a customer as the metric, even if you have, you know, half of the world, getting the other half at a cheaper rate than you got the first half is always better. Yep. Assuming your cost of your group that's working on that is significantly less. Keep going, right? Yeah, and here's the reality. If you're a venture-backed company or if you're a public company, your measure of success is not just people using your product. It's growth. And that's the world that we live in. It's not just profitability. It's profitability and growth. And if that's what you're being judged by... You need to find ways to continuously do that. And I think those ways are not, for a, in a digital product world, for a single product, I think the way you define that doesn't change very much over time. And when you're looking at a product portfolio, as you add new products, that's going to introduce new metrics. But hopefully you're adding new teams. I think too often what happens is a, is a company says, let's add a product, and they just borrow from their existing product teams, and they start spreading everybody too thin. I think that's rarely a winning strategy. 
I would agree. I would agree. So let's talk about experiments, one thing you touched on. What advice would you give PMs to run more ex effective experiments? Yeah, I'm going to talk about this today at industry. Sadly, most product teams don't have a very good experimental mindset. So we all know that we need to experiment. The Lean Startup did a great job of advocating for that, and I think most of us know this should be a part of our repertoire. But the analogy I'm going to use in my talk today is I feel like we're the equivalent of 18th century scientists that are over-relying on bloodletting. So <laughs> bloodletting is a medical practice that's useful in a very teeny tiny sliver of medical cases. But in the 18th century, physicians were using it in the vast majority of cases, right? If they didn't know what to do, they fell back to bloodletting. And it didn't, you know, it took a practice that maybe had been useful and turned it into something that we just over relied on. And I think today, A-B testing is our equivalent of bloodletting. So I think the instance in which it works extremely well is it helps us measure the impact of what we built. And that's important. I think measurement is a critical part of something that a successful product team needs to do. But we're using A-B testing as our primary discovery tool. And that's insanity to me. In order for us to A-B test a feature, we have to build it. So we're not learning if we built the right thing until after we've built it. And so from an experiment standpoint, I think product teams need to add to their repertoire. We need to be looking at more, way more prototyping, way more smokescreen tests, way more concierge tests, Wizard of Oz tests, experiments that allow us to learn before we build. So I like to challenge teams to run experiments that don't require writing code because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to save costly engineering time in our discovery and make sure that we're really building the right thing. I like it. Talk to me about this. Yeah, so let's say we expand our repertoire of experiments. I still feel like there's a lot of other things we're doing wrong. A big thing is we focus on, we think of the unit, like the, the unit that we're working with as an idea. So I have this really great solution in mind or I have this really great feature in mind. So when I think about experimenting, I wanna prototype the whole thing or I want to build the whole thing and A-B test it. And I think this unit of analysis is wrong, right? When we prototype a whole idea, one, it takes a lot of design work. Two, when we get feedback from our customers, we're taking them through lots of screens and a whole workflow, and we're overwhelming them with what we're asking of them. We tend to only consider one design because we're designing eight or 10 or 12 screens, so we do one version of each. And then finally, we tend to do that testing too late in the process to actually integrate any of that feedback. So I think a way better way to think about this, and this isn't a new idea, I think Eric Reese advocates for this in the Lean Startup, it just gets overlooked, is to break our idea down into its underlying assumptions and say, what, what needs to be true for this idea to work? And then for each of those assumptions, looking at how can I design a prototype or an experiment that tests this specific assumption? First of all, you're gonna move a lot faster. Ideas share assumptions. So you're gonna learn a lot more from each iteration. When an experiment fails when we're testing at the idea level, all we learn is a go or no-go decision. We don't learn what made it fail. We just learn that it failed. Whereas when we're testing assumptions, we learn exactly which assumption is gonna cause problems in our ideas. And we can either design around that faulty assumption, or we can take the collection of assumptions that we do know to be true from our experimenting and start to craft new solutions. And I think the reason why teams don't do this is it's really hard to see our underlying assumptions. And so we're still building that skill. Hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. I was, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about an idea I had and I was like, I should break that up into the assumptions. I started thinking through what those would be. I think a methodology like that is powerful. Yeah, absolutely. So talk to me a little <laughs> bit about, you know, working with big companies and startups. Scaling teams has to be different, but I imagine that they differ a little both in product discovery and how they do product management. 
Yeah, although everybody likes to think their context is unique, and really I see the same thing everywhere. So first, things that are common. Every product team that I've ever worked with, everybody's really smart, everybody's really engaged, they're really passionate about their product, they're really passionate about their customers. That's true at startups, it's true at big companies. As they start to learn discovery, they're really passionate about trying to do the right thing for their customer. And I think what, ha- what we run into is there's challenges at the individual or team level where people are bumping up against their old ideas of product management. So maybe a product manager is, letting, is having a hard time letting go of the fact that they shouldn't make all the decisions. Or maybe a designer is struggling with the fact that other people on the team get to have design ideas. Or maybe an engineer doesn't understand why they need to be in a customer interview at all. Right? So there's sort of that level of individuals need to learn how to adjust to this type of process. Then at the team level, there's a lot that we need to learn about how to collaborate. Like We give lip service to collaboration, but here's the reality. I've never met a well-functioning, completely aligned executive team, ever. It takes work, right? Executives are constantly putting in the work to try to align and get along and agree on a strategy. If our most senior leaders struggle with this, we can't just assume our frontline teams do it well. And so that's also a skill and a mindset that we have to develop. So there's a lot of work that has to happen there. And then I think all the way up the organization, our middle managers need to know how to manage teams by outcomes instead of managing teams by outputs. Our senior leaders need to know how to set outcomes instead of outputs. There's this two-way feedback. Like, we can't just say leaders trust us, we've got it, we're going to build the right thing, right? The product team needs to learn how to communicate up what they're doing, what they're learning, how to justify their decisions, and how to invite their leaders into those decisions. So this is a whole new way of working that I think we're creating while doing it. It's a little bit, I think Reid Hoffman once said, uh, building a startup is like falling off a cliff while building an airplane. I may have butchered that, and I don't know if it came from Reid Hoffman, but um, it's that same idea, right? So we're reinventing the way that we build products while building products. And up and down the organization, both in startups and in big companies, we need to do that. So talk to me about trends for product managers. What do you think is going to affect the craft of product management and leadership over the next few years? I think we're getting to the point where it's no longer acceptable to sit in a room and decide what to build. I think that's no longer a controversial statement. Even at our oldest, least technical, sort of stodgy companies that are tiptoeing into software. It definitely shouldn't be acceptable. I actually have a slide for a brief presentation I have tomorrow with a person betting on their $50 million on their gut instinct. And yeah, it's you know what? I'm going to go back to baseball. Like. Kurt Schilling put $60 million into a video game company and lost it all. Yeah. Right? Like, 38 Studios, right? Was that um, what it was called? I can't remember what they were called. It was a video game company. Yeah. And then I think I just read, I think Steve Blank posted an article about a company that's making a billion-dollar bet on something else. I wish I knew, could remember the details. So we're not completely away from this. We haven't made that transition entirely, but I think we're on the path. But I I think where we're really maybe at the very beginning of the path is the hard work of how our work has to change to support that. So I think we're seeing a lot more around skills, right? We're seeing a lot more teams start interviewing and realizing that interviewing is a skill. We see a lot more teams get into rapid prototyping and realizing that's a skill. We definitely are seeing a lot more teams get into experimentation and realizing that's a skill. We're seeing a lot more companies invest in data analysts and realizing that product analytics are a skill. But I think that one of the things I'm going to talk about later today is that in addition to those skills, we also have mindsets that we have to adopt, right? We need to be more collaborative. We need to take a continuous mindset rather than that project mindset I talked about at the beginning. We need to develop our experimental mindset and not act like 18th century scientists. 
Some of that is skill, but some of it is mindset, right? So we have there's skill in experiment design, but there's mindset in being okay with being wrong. So I think the reason why we go off the track with our experiments is because we're designing experiments to support our case instead of to refute our case. So that's a mindset shift. And I think all of this, I think the industry, the fact that we get such rapid feedback on what we're doing and whether it works or not, it's gonna pull us along in this evolution. And so whether we want to come along or not, I think it's happening. And I think that's what we're gonna see is I don't think we're gonna see some big radical change. I think what we're gonna see is we're just gonna keep moving down that path. It feels like product management as, and we all have to remember, it's kind of a young profession. I mean, sales has been around forever. So is marketing. So to some ex extent is engineering, on, even on the software side. But product management kind of feels new. You know, there hasn't really been, and Carnegie Mellon now has a master's program in product management, which is really cool. But there was never like, oh, you go to school and get a degree in product management before. So that's kind of new. There was never tool sets for product managers. So that's new. So I, I do think we have to remember that product management as a craft is new. And it seems to be moving more from the art now to the craft slash science. Would you agree? Yeah, I do. Well, I think product management has its roots in fields that are not new, right? So brand managers that are consumer packaged goods companies do similar things, although some can argue they're more marketers. But fundamentally, business has always had somebody making decisions about what to do, right? What to build, what products to make. I think what's fundamentally new and what's driving all this change in product management is that we have better feedback loops. So if I'm at Procter & Gamble and I'm responsible for soap, my soonest feedback loop, other than maybe some focus groups, is when I put that soap on the store shelves and I learn whether or not people buy it. Whereas with digital products, it's almost like we get to go home with the consumer and watch them use the soap and see what happens, right? Because we're measuring every step of the way. So we don't have video. Right, exactly. So this is, I think the fact that we can measure every single step, one is getting us into data trouble, but that's a different conversation. But it's also providing these really sophisticated feedback loops that gives us insight into human behavior that I don't think we had before. And so that's helping us see that we're actually wrong more often, than, way more often than we thought. And then that's what's driving the evolution of our practices. Hmm. Awesome. Well, we've talked about a lot today. If you had to summarize the things we've talked about into the Teresa words of wisdom that you could impart to others in product leadership, what, what would they be? I think, especially when it comes to discovery, is to think about it the same way we thought about the evolution of delivery over the last 15 years. So it used to be really controversial to release code as soon as you wrote it. It's no longer controversial, right? We release code and release it immediately. Like we write code and release it immediately. I think I read an article that Amazon releases code every 11 seconds or every 1.2 seconds, something absurd, right? And it's because our tools have gotten better. We're seeing the same evolution on the discovery side. We're getting to the point where there's no reason why a designer couldn't design a screen, put it up on something like usertesting.com and immediately get feedback. And so I think, to me, the future of product management is infusing your entire discovery process with customer input as quickly and as frequently as possible. And I think we're going to laugh that thinking about weekly touch points with customers was ever controversial. Awesome. Well, let's turn this to you a little bit, ask you a couple questions. Sure. What's your favorite product, software or otherwise, and why is it your favorite? I have a really boring answer. Uh, it's 1Password. And it's because I used to have a password system. I didn't understand why people needed This is needed not the first time I've heard 1Password, to be honest. <laughs> and I can understand, having just went through, I signed up for something new, and it was like, by the way, here's our password rules. It must be 12 characters. must have a letter. must have a lowercase letter, an uppercase letter, a number, a special character, which only these qualify. I'm like, ah. 
Yeah, I only recently started using 1Password. I've known about it for years. I never thought it was a problem that I had. I had a pretty good system. It was working for me. And then I started working with an assistant and she needed access to all of my accounts. And she started setting passwords for me. She doesn't necessarily send, set the strongest passwords. And so I started using 1Password. We can share passwords through it. And I didn't realize how much cognitive energy every single day it took to try to remember my password for any given site. And 1Password has completely removed that from my day. In fact, every time I go to a site that I haven't been to in a really long time and I get that login screen, I have this worry for a second of like, oh, what if it's not in 1Password? And then when it is, it's like this magical moment of relief. <laughs> it is great, I mean, because everyone has different rules and some yeah. of them contradict and you're like, oh, if, if they would tell me what the rules are, I could probably know what my password was if yeah. that made sense when I was trying to log in. But yeah, I, I've heard one's password a few times. I'm gonna have to check it out myself. So. Yeah, I highly recommend it. So final question today, three words to describe yourself. The first one that comes to mind is definitely curious. I think maybe a little obsessed. And then I think beyond that, I would say, you know, I don't know how to put it in one word, but I often get told that I'm really good at asking disconfirming questions. And I think that's something that I would, I'm proud of, right? I think that's, it. that's what I talk about with an experimental mindset. So I don't know that I can distill that to one word, but I think that would be the third one. Awesome. Well, thank you. It was great having you. Yeah, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.